Welcome to the January 18th, 2012 uh, CNI Conversations. This is our first CNI Conversations for uh, 2012, and I trust that you all had a excellent holidays. Um, uh, I wish everyone a happy new year, um, and I uh, should have said this is Cliff Lynch, the director of CNI. I'm here with Joan Libincott, our associate director, and we've got lots to talk about today. Um, I know that uh, Joan and I saw many of you at our fall meeting, um, which was uh, December 13th and 14th of last year, and uh, that meeting was uh, very well attended and I think by all accounts uh, very successful. We are starting to um, roll out material from that onto the net. Of course, all of the presentations have uh, already been uh, put up when we've received them from authors but we're starting to put out a video of the plenary sec sessions and some selected um, breakout sessions. We have a series of interviews that Educause did on our behalf um, with uh, speakers and participants at the meeting, and uh, those will be uh, rolling out um, over the next uh, week or two as well, I believe. So um, there's a wealth of material that is uh, starting to be available from that meeting. Meanwhile, I'll just note that uh, the way the schedule works, our spring meeting, which is uh, April 2nd and 3rd in uh, Baltimore, um, is already coming at us very fast. Um, and uh, we put the uh, call for um, project briefings out a couple of days ago. Uh, we're already getting responses to that. Um, we should be putting out the call for participation in the executive roundtable um, within the next uh, week or 10 days. And we've got our um, keynote speakers in place now for both the opening and the closing um, uh, plenary sessions. Uh, this is really exciting. We've decided to do a pair of plenary sessions that really look broadly at the future of higher education, teaching, and learning, and do it from two very different perspectives. Um, the opening plenary is going to be um, uh, James Duderstadt, the President Emeritus of the University of Michigan, who is going to talk about the future of the research university, and I think he's going to think very sort of institutionally and structurally there, and intends to draw upon work that he has been doing as a member of the National Academies Committee uh, that's been looking for the last couple of years at the future of the research university. For our closing plenary, we have um, Philip Long, uh, who I think many of you know, um, who uh, um, is going to look very much more at teaching and learning as it's sort of done in a um, in, a, in a faculty context rather than the sort of large-scale structure of universities and how technology and digital content um, and indeed um, uh, developments um, 
uh, like the ability to do large-scale distributed classes, lecture capture, um, how all of those things are really changing the face of teaching and learning. I think these two sessions should complement each other very well. They are very different perspectives, but I think between us, they'll give a, between them, they'll give us a very helpful kind of fresh look at some of the developments here. And um, you know, certainly the developments are. Um, uh, are just rolling out day by day. I'm sure um, many of you saw the announcement out of MIT about um, doing uh, credit for um, open courseware um, type uh, uh, learning. Um, and st there's still, of course, plenty of questions about exactly how that will work in practice. But at the same time, um, it's, uh, I think, a significant announcement that puts them um, in the business of doing <coughs> certification um, of mastery is a very distinct step from delivering instruction with a very distinct set of economics on it. You've probably seen um, some of the work that's been going on at Stanford as they've been teaching these uh, worldwide courses with enrollments in the uh, 90,000 kind of range, which um, is just a sort of a fascinating dynamic. And uh, uh, today, um, uh, you probably saw the announcement from uh, Internet 2 that was covered in the Chronicle of Higher Education and other uh, venues about um, the uh, bulk licensing of textbooks as an experiment, um, working with uh, McGraw-Hill and uh, five universities. Um, I think all of these just point, um, you know, at the huge shifts that are going on, and uh, this really is going to be a very good time to reassess um, uh, some of the developments there. After the CNI meeting um, in December, historically, things have gotten quiet as we um, here have sort of prepared for the holidays. Not this year. Um, uh, there were a series of meetings that ran the entire rest of the week uh, that I participated in. I want to talk about a couple of those. Um, uh, the day after the um, CNI uh, fall meeting concluded, we hosted here a meeting of the institutions who've been working on the first year of the Bamboo Project. Um, and uh, they had a sort of an extended um, set of presentations about the status of that project and a fascinating discussion of where it could go forward. Uh, this was an opportunity for me to get caught up on where they were in various areas and um, what their thinking was as far as um, future uh, work with um, their funding from Mellon. Um, we'll, I think, try and have a session at this in the sp at the spring meeting. But I was very interested, for example, to learn that a major part of the Bamboo Project was now using the Hub Zero system, which was developed at Purdue and which we've had some sessions on. Um, uh, this is the software platform that originally was designed to host the Nano Hub at Purdue and now has been deployed to support a wide range of learning and research communities um, around the country. Uh, 
uh, but it was very interesting to see that technology appearing in a humanities context. Um, also some very nice work on um, access to large textual resources taking place there. Um, later on, uh, Friday of that week, uh, I was also given the opportunity to go out to the National Library of Medicine and give an invited talk there um, as part of the um, 175th anniversary uh, celebration of the uh, National Library of Medicine. Um, this was a time uh, last year and I was um, sort of the very last speaker in the series just making it in under uh, the gun for uh, 2011. Um, they, they invited a series of folks to come through and to think and speculate about um, developments that would be important to the National Library of Medicine and to uh, um, the health and life sciences in the next couple of decades um, and uh, how that might inform the development of strategies for NLM. It's, it was really a wonderful opportunity to think about a number of things, one of which is just how enormously well the National Library of Medicine has done over the past um, uh, 20 or 30 years at least in terms of recognizing trends early and strategically positioning themselves to uh, uh, take advantage of them and you can see this in things like their work with PubMed uh, Central, they're um, exploiting the internet to make um, uh, Medline into a truly public resource uh, in their very early establishment of the National Center for Biotechnology Information and the um, strategic things that they have done uh, in that center over the years. I mean, it really is an incredible record and it was a great honor to be able to um, try and uh, help them to think a little bit about um, what things might be coming next that were going to um, lead to big changes. Uh, I'm not going to recount the whole talk, which um, was uh, captured on video and I believe is still available for streaming um, uh, from NLM. Uh, you can find a pointer to that in the um, uh, CNI um, uh, announce archives, um, but uh, I would say that one of the really big structural changes that um, that I talked about at some length was the addition of medical records to the um, sort of overall bio um, biological and health sciences uh, knowledge base and how those integrate with the literature on one side and with the underlying um, uh, molecular biology and particularly genomics data on the other side as genomic sequencing gets very cheap. Um, uh, clearly, there is, um, you know, an enormous data mining opportunity emerging as we are able to really combine lots of um, personal level genomic sequencing with medical records. There are very difficult privacy issues, um, although there's also some um, reasons to believe that people are kind of rethinking some of the privacy balances there. Um, I think that 
many of um, uh, the concerns about privacy of this data have been as much the sense that if they were public, they would be used against you um, by allowing insurers and employers and others to um, essentially discriminate against people based on knowledge of their um, uh, of their medical records or um, knowledge of what their genome um, might say about their future medical conditions. Um, we are starting to see um, uh, sequencing become available to individuals, not just as part of the medical system through things like 23andMe. Um, we are seeing people who are sharing that information very publicly. Um, you're seeing uh, large-scale entities like hospital systems uh, starting to think about how to exploit these databases. Um, in December, the National Health Service in the UK actually announced that they were going to open up National Health Service records for data mining, and the default would be you are opted in, although you could opt out. Um, and they're a little vague about exactly who they'll open them up to right now. Um, clearly various research folks, but it sounds to me like um, pharmaceutical companies and others as well. Um, there are other aspects of this too, um, and we explored a number of them in um, my talk and the um, discussion that followed. Uh, for example, what happens to medical records and genomic um, information for dead people? Um, there's not really a big privacy issue around it at some level, or certainly at least it's hard to use it against you when you're gone. Um, but nonetheless, these records continue to be relevant for data mining. The nature of the data mining algorithms is that the larger the data sets you have to work with, the greater the sort of statistical resolution for very complex kinds of associations between things. Um, so I think we are going to see questions, for example, about what happens to um, the medical records of dead people. One can imagine, you know, another box on donor cards, uh, organ donor cards, um, saying that, you know, I'll pass on organs if they're useful, and I'll also pass on records if they're useful. Um, uh, there's some really fascinating kinds of developments there, and I'm hoping to write this talk up in an expanded form sometime in the next few um, few uh, months. Um, speaking of writing up talks, I should also say I'm uh, working on the one that I did as the McCusker Lecture in um, uh, Illinois in um, uh, November, uh, this one on um, names and lives in the scholarly record, and I've uh, been doing quite a bit of reading over the holidays and the evolution of national biography, um, which is uh, just some fascinating stuff. Um, uh, uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, it's certainly an area that uh, uh, I hadn't known very much about and that's very rich. Um, I'll mention that the holidays were busy for another reason, too. As I mentioned in an earlier um, CNI conversation, also through the CNI announced list, um, 
the Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, issued two calls for information, one dealing with public access to journal articles that arise as a result of federally funded research, and the second um, dealing with access to data that is produced through federally funded research programs. Um, those calls both um, uh, ended last week, and um, CNI, along with many other organizations, uh, submitted comments to both of those calls um, for input. Um, my understanding is that OSTP is going to put all of the responses up shortly, um, and uh, if they don't, um, you know, do it fairly soon, we'll put these responses up independently. But I'd, um, I'd really just as soon have them up in the broader context of the full set of responses they received. Um, I'm not going to try and run through the specifics of our comments, but a couple of things we highlighted were the um, the issues involved in computational use of uh, corpora of published literature and uh, the need to accommodate those as part of any policy around access to uh, publications. And then in the data area, um, uh, a number of detailed comments, but also a sort of a specific um, uh, overarching observation that what's really driving all of this discussion of data um, is that we're seeing the um, emergence of a lot more data and, and computationally intensive scholarship. And this is a massive change that affects the way scholars do their work and the way they communicate their work. And that it's critically important not to just um, sort of at one point of time say we understand what's going on, write a set of policies and move on to the next thing, that this needs to be understood and managed as a process and that we need to collect data about what scholars are doing, how they're responding to policy initiatives, how data is in fact being preserved and reused and discarded, and um, we're probably going to need to adjust our policies and programs here on a continuing basis in light of, um, of data and practice. Uh, and um, I think that's a very important thing to remind the policymaking world about. Um, it has a lot of implications, one of which is that some very modest um, accommodations and funding for data collection and um, analysis in this area becomes essential. Um, and the other is to really, frankly, act with a certain amount of, of humility and caution as you go forward in a transition that is this complex. We had a New Year surprise to add to the um, uh, OSTP calls for information. The National Science Board finally issued their policy document. Um, uh, this is the comes out of the work that Jose Marie Griffith um, has been heading. 
um, and um, they made that available on, uh, I believe it was the 30th or the 31st of December with a very, very short window for comments on that. They've since extended it um, about an additional week and uh, we submitted some brief comments on that too. Um, the document out of the National Science Board is fairly short. It's a nice concise statement of principles um, plus some appendices and if you've not looked at it yet even though the window for comment is closed I would say it is well worth your um, time to have a look at. So um, those are a few of the things that have been uh, occupying me over the last couple of weeks and the holidays. Um, I'm going to um, turn the, um, the mic over to uh, Joan Lippincott, who's also been busy and is going to report on, um, among other things, uh, one of the early conferences of the new year and a few of her observations from that before I conclude with a couple of final things. Thanks, Cliff. <clears throat> this month I had my first opportunity to attend the Modern Language Association's annual conference. I attended a number of sessions on digital humanities and noted that in almost every time slot on the conference program, attendees could find a session with a digital theme, whether in scholarship or teaching and learning. The sessions I chose in this area were all well attended. And as a baby boomer, I noticed that the attendees in the digitally-themed sessions were about two-thirds younger MLA members, probably a mix of graduate students and junior faculty. It was encouraging to see that there was a critical mass of both papers and audiences for these topics. Some of the interesting information that I picked up on included using a smart pen in transcribing manuscripts, a description of the difficulty of use of purely machine statistics of word use in that spelling can vary by addition and translator and some uh, words can actually be changed by editors, for example, in the Victorian era due to sensitivities of the time. I was very interested in a report of uh, an MLA committee that is looking at new dissertation formats other than straight text documents as part of the larger work that the MLA is doing on examining doctoral education and alternate career paths for uh, doctoral students. Sidney Smith of the University of Michigan, who's heading the committee, said, and I quote, we should ask each other how are you communicating your work instead of what have you published? So she's a senior member of the faculty at Michigan and she's looking at new forms of scholarship and wanting to promote that within the association. Additionally, I was intrigued by a faculty member talking about the difficulties of developing a searchable digital version of some modern texts, such as a novel by Samuel Beckett that includes musical scores, a passage that is written backwards, and other peculiarities. And then finally, the importance of collaborations in digital projects, scholars working with information technologists, librarians, and others. 
I was invited to be a respondent on a panel on digital preservation organized by Bob Keeft, college librarian of Occidental College. He and my colleague Jim Kelly of the University of Massachusetts Amherst have been instrumental in organizing a new discussion group on libraries and research in languages and literatures within MLA. The panelists included Laura Mandel, a faculty member from Texas A&M, who's working on a website of 18th century materials, John Wilkin of the Hathi Trust, Jeff Walensky of ProQuest, and John Kiplinger of JSTOR and Portico. All agreed that we have some good services for digital preservation, but we need better economic models and more wide-ranging adoption of digital preservation practices. In the teaching and learning arena, I was intrigued by a presentation at the MLA conference by a faculty member, Gentry Sayers, currently at the University of Victoria, who believes that pedagogy should emphasize students creating objects of sustained inquiry, something that I've been interested in for a number of years. Um, he described a course that he had taught when a media workshop when he was a faculty member at the University of Washington Bothell campus. And part of his motivation was to link libraries, learning, and, and the local community through a digital media collection. And they used a Puget Sounds digital collection at UW, particularly a collection of live performances that had taken place at a well-known music venue in downtown Seattle. He also wanted to know how to get students actively engaged in the library's digital collections and wanted to collaboratively create an online exhibit anchored in the local culture, and they used Omeka for that uh, project. He wanted the students to develop an intimate knowledge of digital production's material processes. The class was divided into groups that work on editing, metadata, design, interviews, usability, and history and representation. It was really quite a fascinating project, and a number of the bands and musicians who were represented in the collection were invited and came to class or had in, were interviewed over Skype, so it was a lot of fun for the students as well. Recently, I presented a keynote at a faculty conference hosted by the Center for Pedagogy at Loyola University in Chicago. I particularly enjoyed a presentation by a Loyola psychology faculty member and a panel of his students in which they presented their video projects on topics related to issues in perception. They produced some nice videos with a wealth of information on their topics. In the Q&A, someone asked why their video had not cited any sources, and the students replied that they had primarily used documentary videos to do the background research for their projects, but did not know if they were supposed to cite them, and if so, how. So this is an area that's ripe for additional education. My keynote had emphasized students learning to build academic arguments based on grounding in information of their disciplines as they learn to develop new types of resources, such as videos, websites, podcasts, posters, and data visualizations in their courses. So I continue to try to track interesting developments in the teaching and learning arena. Back to you, Cliff. Thanks. Um, I don't want to uh, let this call conclude without a couple of uh, final um, things. One is a shout out to the um, 
uh, Library and Information Technology Association within uh, the American Library Association, LIDA. Um, I was uh, delighted to uh, uh, to hear recently that um, as of this spring, their uh, publication, Information Technology in Libraries, is going open access and, as I understand it, going electronic only. Uh, they are making the leap um, there and, um, uh, you know, to a very great extent, I think, practicing what they preach in terms of access. I think it's going to certainly make the journal um, a lot more readily findable and visible, and I'll be very interested to see how this um, affects uh, various perceptions of the impact of the journal. It's worth noting that they follow the Association of College and Research Libraries, another ALA division that um, did a similar thing uh, last year, I believe, um, in going open access, although I believe they, ha are, um, at least for the moment, are continuing to produce a paper as well as an electronic copy of their journal. Um, it's really great to see scholarly and professional societies opening up access to their material, in my view. It's just so consistent with their mission, and I know that sometimes um, uh, these societies have faced very legitimate financial challenges and even more um, fears about financial stability that they've had to get over in order to um, make these policy changes and take advantage of the opportunities that the networked environment um, creates for them in terms of being able to advance their mission. Um, so it's it's always great to see um, to, to see this happen for another society and especially one that I've um, I've been involved in for many many years. The last thing I want to mention is the National Academies Board on Research Data and Information. Um, I was absolutely um, thrilled to be asked to um, co-chair that starting this, um, this year uh, uh, for a three-year term. My other co-chair is Fran Berman, um, who many of you will know from her work on the uh, Blue Ribbon Task Force on Sustainable Digital Preservation. She is the um, uh, Vice President for Research at RPI now. She used to be at the San Diego Supercomputer Center. Um, the Board um, on Research Data and Information has been around for a couple of years now. Um, Mike Lask uh, from Rutgers is the outgoing chair, and um, they've done a great deal in terms of um, trying to um, help formulate and clarify policy around scientific data in that unique kind of way that the National Academies are able to do by bringing together um, uh, players from many, many different sectors. Um, and uh, I look forward to opportunities to um, be able to continue and to do that work. Um, the board will be having its um, sixth meeting um, January 31st and uh, February 1st. 
um, in Washington, and uh, most of that meeting is open. Uh, information is available on the National Academy's website, and I will put something out to CNI announce as well for those who are interested in um, policy surrounding scientific data. So um, I look forward to being able to describe um, uh, some of the activities of that board as well in uh, uh, future CNI conversations. I think that that concludes the list of things that Joan and I wanted to catch you up on today. Um, we hope to be able to get back with you for another of these conversations uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Thank you for joining us.